In mental health, it's such a common, broadly understood phenomena, and at the same time, people have difficulty putting their finger on it. What precisely are you talking about? Hello and welcome to another episode of the HSE Talking Health and Wellbeing podcast. My name is Fergal Fox and today we're talking about mental health promotion and the work of Mental Health Ireland with Martin Rogan. Now before we get into that, I'd like to thank you as always for listening to our podcast and ask if you'd like to get in touch with us with a suggestion or feedback, please send us an email to healthandwellbeing.communications at HSE. That email is in the podcast information wherever you're listening to this. And please, we'd encourage you to share this podcast with a friend or family member that you think may be interested. So today we're talking to Martin Rogan. Martin, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. So you're CEO of Mental Health Ireland. Can you tell us a bit about the key work of Mental Health Ireland? Yeah. So for the last, what, seven years I've been CEO of Mental Health Ireland. Mental Health Ireland goes back to the 1960s when Ireland was a very different place with a huge number of people living in hospitals. And many were now coming home from hospital and communities weren't ready for this. So the organization came together in 1966 and it had two roles. One was to be a practical support to people rejoining their communities. And that was sometimes around housing, around social connection, around employment. But a wider piece then is around promoting positive mental health and well-being. So it's making sure that the community have a good understanding in terms of being able to protect themselves and promote positive mental health in their own lives, but also for friends, families and neighbours and people in your community. So we have two major roles in that space, but we also have a, a large role in terms of providing training and education. I suppose one of the things we're trying to promote in the space of mental health is understanding in two senses, one being a technical understanding of mental health, but also an empathetic understanding. So we do a lot of work with local communities, with fellow NGOs, with businesses and state organizations, providing training and awareness around mental health issues. Yeah, I think that collaborative approach is essential. Our, our mental health promotion plan is called Stronger Together, but it really kind of highlights the dependency on a really wide array of actors and agencies and individuals, even you know volunteers at, at different levels to play some sort of role in relation to mental health promotion at whatever level they can. Yeah, I think we fairly early on discovered that mental health promotion is not a solo pursuit. Um, there's lots of things an individual can do, which take the Ottawa Charter approach about strengthening individuals, strengthening communities, and then removing barriers. But I think we can achieve a lot more when we collaborate, and particularly when we collaborate with non-traditional actors. At the moment, we're working with the Department of Health in relation to the National Mental Health Promotion Plan. And this is about working with all of government, so many, many different avenues in government, but departments sometimes are doing really good work, but they wouldn't necessarily describe it as mental health promotion. But it's a core part of work in social protection, in urban planning, in justice, and a whole range of different fields. So it's about recognizing those connectivities and then having interaction between various government departments and their agencies as well. I'd like to come back to that. But first, I want to take it back to what you said there about Mental Health Ireland. You're trying to create empathy and understanding. So let's get into both of those separately a bit. First of all, understanding around mental health or mental health promotion. One of my favorite terms is social and emotional learning, using that kind of mental health is kind of, you know, loads of people have loads of different things comes into the mind when you say mental health. Um, and sometimes it's it's not positive, but that social and emotional learning seems to be a frame that we can really engage with or, or you know, we can try and work in schools and we do a lot of work in youth settings, but that seems to be key about trying to get people to, I suppose, mind their emotions, express them. Or how do you see that? Yeah, it, I think the term mental health is such a broad term. Yeah. And that's inclusive in one way, but it also can be a bit confusing as well. I think for lots of people, they struggle, they don't get past the word mental. Yeah. They hear health and they immediately think of mental health issues or concerns or struggles people might have. 
But we also know it can be over-inclusive in terms of um, a number of years ago, we were recruiting for a mental health promotions manager post and we had hundreds of applications and there were people who were really strong on mental health and illness. We had people who were really good on health promotion. We had people who had skill sets in addiction, in suicide prevention, in social marketing. And it was all of these. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. only about three candidates could actually, you know, talk to us in terms of what they meant by mental health promotion. And it's about, you know, the understanding of the individual that they feel that, you know, they have control of their lives. They have factors in their lives that are helpful. There are things that are unhelpful. And the question is, how does that balance work? I suppose one of the things we learned during the COVID pandemic, particularly when the various restrictions were in place, and it was really important and protective for the whole population. But there were people who either by accident or design had actually healthy practices built into their life. They eat well, they were involved in the local community, they were involved in sports, did probably the local choir, might have been, you know, some social connection with, it could be, you know, tidy towns, for example. When you remove those scaffolding poles, sometimes people's stresses and, you know, they just simply didn't have an outlet, they didn't have a support and didn't have the social connection that's so important there. And like a scaffolding, you can remove one pole, you might get away with that and you might get a second one away. But when you take them all away, the structure collapses. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy. And it was nearly like a surprise to some people. It certainly was like, what is wrong? Why am I annoyed? Why am I head wrecked? Or whatever the term you might use. But people were frustrated during that COVID. And I hear the term used a lot, protective factors for mental health. And, and that's like the scaffolding you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. And oftentimes they're very subtle. You know, they are social relations, their hobbies, their sports, their interests, their music or reading, wherever it might be. We always encourage people to have a utility belt when it comes to your mental health. Don't just have one weapon in your arsenal. Yeah. You know, it's about some days, you know, I, I need solitudes. Other days I need social action. Sometimes it's activities. Sometimes I need more rest. I need to be careful around drugs and alcohol, wherever it might be. But I suppose sometimes what we often refer to as mental illness is when people keep pressing the same rescue button all the time and go back to their preferred coping mechanism. And it'll work for them a lot of the time, but it won't work all of the time. And that's when people find they, they, they find themselves in difficulty. So how, how would you think in your sense in working in Mental Health Ireland, how do you think we're faring after COVID? How do, how do you think we're bouncing back or, or is that a fair term to even use? I think we've done remarkably well. I suppose like at a population level, when, when people have been traumatized, it could be a conflict, it could be a weather event, for example, there's kind of a collective amnesia comes in. Yeah. Like when we look back over the last number of years, it's almost like, was this a science fiction that I was miscast in somehow? Um, it seems very unreal. And I think Irish people at the time probably surprised themselves because we, you know, were found ourselves, you know, following the advice and, and you know, we certainly saw the benefits of that. There are some tales effects. There's no doubt about that. You know, particularly for younger people, you know, you know, teenagers and young adults who found, if you look at what we need to do at different life stages. So when you're born, you have to, you know, learn how to drink bottles and fill your nappy and sleep. As you move through the toddler days, you know, you have to learn how to speak and interact and become a little bit more autonomous and independent. When you get to your teenagers, it's about developing who you are, understanding who you are and who you're not and what your identity is. And you can really only do that through wider social interactions outside of your family network or your immediate friend group. If that isn't available to you, that can cause difficulties. So there is certainly a generation of, of young people that we can see are, are still coming to terms with that. They're developmental delay to some extent, and they'll catch up and make good. But there's other kids who have unfortunately become trapped in, in something of a groove there. We're seeing a lot of young people come forward with anxiety-based conditions. And we're also seeing you know, a significant increase in the number of people with eating disorder. So these are effects that, you know, they are negative consequences, but they can be entirely attributed to 
COVID and its consequences is a, is a feature. But we also know that for the wider population, I think people now have a greater appreciation of the need to be kind to each other, to be accommodating, to understand that people are moving at a different pace. What works for me may not work for others. And we can see how a lot of people have integrated healthier habits and probably cherish. The, yeah, I think and, that appreciation yeah. has shot up. You know, I suppose from, from us working in health and well-being in the HSE, we want everybody to engage but like covid forced their hand didn't it like it, you have to think about these things it, it was it was really a collective pause for thought and you know it, it certainly went on much longer than any of us expected i think if you know in the initial days people said well this is going to take a week or two weeks uh, maybe a month it'll hardly go on two months and you know two years later and beyond there were still you know dimensions as we had to factor into our lives so i think people have become probably a little bit more intentional and are looking at everything from sport, fitness, social activities, diet, etc., and and factoring that in in a more integrated way into their daily lives. Can I talk to you now about some of the work of Mental Health Ireland? You know, so how, how do you get around the country to support the communities that you're trying to impact on? So Mental Health Ireland fundamentally is a, a national voluntary organisation. So we have volunteers who come from all walks of life. So they can be community leaders, sometimes they're health professionals, people with lived experience, family members, sports coaches, you name it. And we have a network of over 30 local mental health associations where people from local communities volunteer and become involved in different activities and programs. And then we also have our national programs as well with our staff group. So we have a number of programs in terms of the whole area of mental health promotion, which are delivered out through our training channels, through our social media, through webinars, uh, through a whole series of resources that we co-produce. And co-production is a really important part of our work. So essentially, everything we develop, we work in partnership with people with direct lived experience, the end consumer of whatever the model might be. For example, the most recent resource we launched in Limerick there about two weeks ago is on mental health and menopause. And we had a blended group from people all around the country bringing expertise and background, both professional expertise, lived experience, etc. And to produce a really, really useful, pragmatic booklet yeah. that gives you guidance and not just for the individual who might be going through menopause, but for family members as well. It takes a bit longer, but you get a really, really good outcome and a very grounded piece, and a very practical piece at the far end of that. So you have a network of volunteers and mental health associations across the country, but you also have very important standards or kind of principles about the way you work. Yeah. In, in our strategy, we commit to a model called co-production. Yeah. And co-production means that from the very, very outset, we include people with lived experience and people who will be end users of the product we're trying to develop. So we bring in evidence base, so you have the professional inputs, you have the various expertises, but it's really, really important that ultimately the people who benefit from this or it's aimed for uh, are actively involved from the very get-go and this process is, is is not always a nice tidy process um it can take a little bit of time and it's really important that we recognize that all of us know more than any of us so when you bring these viewpoints together they won't always sit easily together sometimes there's a bit of discussion we try and avoid descending into politeness so sometimes people jump to consensus very quickly but to get a really good outcome and a really robust product uh, it's important that people are respected in their viewpoint, they're heard, and it's incorporated and included. We found that's really been helpful when we're developing new, you know, training type programs, engagement programs, community cafes, recovery programs, etc. Co-production is, is essentially the hallmark of working with Mental Health Ireland. And isn't that the second tenant that I wanted to come back to around the empathy, really? Isn't that fundamental? Like, you know, you're listening to your target audience, but you're trying to understand so that your message can be kind of empathy proofed, I guess. Is that it? Yeah. Essentially, I suppose we work on the basis that to enjoy good mental health is to be part of your community. 
Yeah. Um, and that means to be able to accommodate other points of view. There's this phenomenon known as Sonder. And Sonder is your ability to recognize that other people have complicated lives. I was talking to someone recently and a friend rang them and said, listen, can I meet you at three o'clock? But I need to be gone at four. And he said, well, that's okay in your world, but you know, my life isn't just a cameo role in your world. Yes. And when we empathize, we genuinely understand it's, it's true compassion, but it's a sense that other people have complexity, they have demands on them, they have, they have their own lives, they have their own interests. And it doesn't mean we'll always agree, but if we're going to gel and collaborate and cooperate, um, we need to have an empathetic understanding. And we're seeing a lot of movement now about language around, you know, be kind and take your time, etc. And that goes a long way about simply being respectful. But there should also be a curiosity there in terms of what's going on for this person. But you know, you're not there as like an interviewer. You're there to engage in the relationship and exchange something. And in a, a community that's enjoying good mental health, everybody feels they can participate, that they're welcomed, uh, that it's inclusive. And it's not necessarily that they're going to be indulged or pandered, but their presence is felt uh, and they can actually be understood. That reminds me of that other central tenet that you brought in at the top around empathy, around mental health. So if you're taking that service user engagement as a fundamental principle, you're proving the work from the very start. Yeah, that's it. And it's, it's designed in from the very outset. I suppose sometimes when, you know, as professionals, people are trained, they're exposed to the learning, the latest evidence, etc. That's a really important viewpoint. We don't stray from the science. But it's a human interaction as well and it has to live in the real world. And in a healthy community where people can enjoy good mental health, there's an empathetic understanding that we accommodate other people's views. We don't necessarily surrender to those views. We don't have to convert people to our viewpoint. But there's a genuine recognition that other people have different approaches, different values, different experiences that they bring to the frame. Sometimes as professionals, when we work with people who are you know, emotionally charged or in difficulty or whatever, you can use empathy. But if you're doing that all day, you can exhaust that, like a sense of compassion fatigue. Uh, a friend of mine refers to it as running on empty as opposed to running on empathy. And when we have volunteers who have other roles and other backgrounds, they can bring a freshness into the conversation and a new viewpoint that is really, really helpful. It gives a very rich tapestry in terms of the experience of you know, individuals with lived experience of mental health needs, their family members, their professionals there, and their community leaders as well. So you're getting a very rich blend when you co-produce. And that's the model we're, we're very keen on in Mental Health Ireland. I saw you taking that principle into the a resource I saw on the, on the Mental Health Ireland website around the workplace. It's, it's a, a setting we're obviously interested in. In, in episode 17, we spoke to uh, Biddy O'Neill about the Healthy Workplace Framework. But your resource talks about taking a mental health approach to you know health and well-being in the workplace, uh, but also engaging with people in that workplace to kind of set up some sort of a baseline or understand from your target audience. Yeah, we, this was, we worked with employers in a whole range of different areas, sometimes responding to requests for training and updates, etc. Yeah. and staff development and staff well-being as well. And that's a really important part of our work. But I suppose if you think of in Ireland today, we're essentially at full employment. And for many people, half of their waking life is in work and sometimes a lot more than that. And I suppose over the last number of years, we've seen from a health and safety point of view that people have ergonomic you know, desks and yeah, yeah. high low desks and nice comfortable seating and how you use your keyboard. But I think there's also an opportunity for uh, a mental health or psychological ergonomics as well, in terms of look at shift patterns, how people engage. If you're working remotely, do you feel isolated? Do you feel you've been inducted into the organization? If you have a concern, how's that heard and addressed? The risks of, you know, rust out for people who are being underutilized. Particularly we've really enjoyed in Ireland over the last number of years, big influx of people who are highly, highly skilled coming into our economy. 
oftentimes they're not using their skill set uh, and their full training in the roles they take in Ireland. So rust out is a real risk and obviously burnout where people are overextended and overstretched. So mental health and workplace is really important for World Mental Health Day last year. We launched our webinar and did a, a free booklet, which is a full resource for employees and employers, because I think employers recognize a in a competitive workspace. If you're just in a happy workspace, your staff will simply move on. But also from a productivity point of view, if staff enjoy their work, get to use their skills, have a sense of gamification and challenge, they're much more likely to stay engaged and, and deliver the best aspect of themselves. One of the terms I liked from that was that kind of you're looking at the psychosocial risks in the workplace, you know, and that's really what you're talking about there. You know, some of that stuff that the people might have just accepted beforehand, you know, this is tough, you know, just grind down and grit your teeth and get on with it. There can be a, kind of a sense of frog boiling that goes on in workplaces at times. Sometimes say, well, that's just the way it is here. And does it have to stay that way? And it's a bit disappointing if people settled for, you know, the lowest common denominator rather than the highest common factor. So, you know, if you look at all of your staff and it's not just the executive suite or the management team or wherever it might be, but it's that are all staff members valued in the organization? And is their viewpoint heard? And can they contribute to their fullest extent? You know, you can get lots of dynamics entering into a workspace and even places that are start off really dynamic and healthy and enthusiastic can become cynical, can become locked in, can become trapped in tradition. And, you know, that's the way we do things around here. And we've actually seen environments where even though they appear to be recruiting, they're not welcoming and they can't integrate new staff members who bounce off the organization and, and, and move elsewhere. So if people don't see, get that sense of belonging and a sense of ownership of what they're doing, they'll simply move forward. Yeah, I suppose it's so important to support the managers on an ongoing basis as well to, to have that induction culture evolving. Isn't that really what we need? That yeah. evolution on an ongoing basis. And, and it's really important too from a manager's perspective too, is that, you know, some managers are, are appear to have a natural affinity and are alert to human needs and family dynamics and things that are going on for people or perhaps someone who's had a bereavement recently that that's accommodated somehow. But we have to recognise that, you know, if you look at Corey Key's work, his, you know, he's looked on these huge public health studies and discovered that about 16% of the population enjoy good mental health and about 54% of the population have sufficient mental health to get by. About 20% of people have a diagnosis and be in treatment at any given time. And then there's a further 10% who are described as languishing. And languishing means life is difficult, awkward, probably a bit argumentative, a bit truculent. Uh, you're not ill, but you can be difficult to be around. And when Corey Keyes did these studies in industrial and rural areas and developed countries and emerging economies, he pretty well found the same distribution curve. What he wasn't expecting when he repeated the studies in the States with the same cohort of people 10 years later, he still found a 16, 54, 20 and 10, but the membership changed. So basically the lesson is because you're enjoying good mental health today, that doesn't mean you've got lifelong membership. Yeah. Or equally, if you're languishing, you don't have to languish and languishing. So this is very dynamic. So if you're not experiencing a significant mental health need right now, it's simply not your turn today. But over your life course, you can expect to have a, you know, a phase of your life where things are, are difficult and you need to know, how do I protect myself from this? How do I respond to it? And who are the people I can reach out to who can genuinely help me with this? Yeah. And I suppose that's a good opportunity to highlight our own mental health resource and yourmentalhealth.ie is our signpost there for all the listeners out there in terms of the HSE's range of mental health supports, which links to a lot of our agencies and partners like Mental Health Ireland that we're working with. 
I'd like to take you back into the kind of broader piece. You mentioned working with the Department of Health around their mental health promotion work. And uh, my understanding is that you're building on the frame that we have for the Stronger Together Mental Health Promotion Plan, the HSE, but you're looking to see how other government departments can support mental health promotion. And you were suggesting at the outset that some of them are doing it without even seeing they're doing it or yeah. You know, it doesn't have the mental health promotion name on it, but it is pure mental health promotion. So if you look at the, the, the National Mental Health Promotion Plan, and it's a confluence of three different mandates, if you like. So Slaughter Care suggests there needs to be a National Mental Health Promotion Plan, uh, as does Connecting for Life, as does Sharing Division and Healthy Ireland. So where all these intersect. Yeah. Um, so we've been working with our colleagues at the Department of Health. Isn't mental health promotion a real fundamental when you think of it like the confluence of those four massive health strategies that they're kind of by virtue of that even it's like nothing before mental health mental health is fundamental to your well-being and and i think for far too long whether it's a descartes approach or we separate the mind from the body or whatever but um there was always a view that mental health was somehow different yeah so there's health promotion and then there's another kind of subspecies called mental health promotion and if you look at a lot of the strategies that are good for your physical health in terms of exercise and sleep and diet etc a lot of these transpose into mental health but there's other elements as well but I think separating them out, if you look, for example, in the States uh, in the last number of years, they've lost three years in life expectancy. And the things that are attributable to all have a mental health basis. So it's drug and alcohol use, it's homicide and suicide and obesity. So if people enjoy good mental health, they're much more amenable and much more receptive to physical health messages. But if your self-esteem is low and your self-regard is low, you're probably more likely to smoke you're probably not as likely to exercise. You're probably more likely to find yourself in risky relationships, etc. So if people enjoy good mental health, they're more receptive and they're primed for other health behaviours and other health protection. That's why they say that phrase, no health without mental health. No health without mental health. And so it, it's across that spectrum. I suppose one of the challenges has been compared with other health strategies, if it's an obesity strategy, you can say, well, show me the measure of that. Is, is that a weighing scales or what's yeah. it look like? If it's drugs and alcohol, it's either, you know, how you use, are you responsible, etc. If it's sexual health, you know, there's very clear metrics and indices that you can work with saying, are we making progress here? Are we, are we slipping behind? Where's our, our challenges? In mental health, it's such a common, broadly understood phenomena, and at the same time, people have difficulty putting their finger on it. What precisely are you talking about? So we've had the good fortune at our most recent meeting, for example, we've had 16 government departments around the table, and we've worked with uh, University of Galway, Margaret Barry, who's done extraordinary work on this, where she's rated the literature in terms of the elements that we know are actually are value-added and impactful and can be evidentially stacked up in that way, but also has interacted with international organizations and different states and ministries right across the world to see while individual activities within government departments are useful, the ones that actually give the best dividends where you get cross-interdepartmental working, intersectoral working. And that's really the hallmark we're looking at. But at our most recent meeting, we had 16 government departments. And sometimes when it comes to divvying out, saying, well, if these are the actions who are the actors that people can um, slink away from the table, suddenly urgently wind or watch or need to be somewhere else. It was quite reverse. People were stepping forward saying, absolutely, in the Department of Environment, we have a program that's key to this, or in the Department of Social Protection, Department of Education, Injustice. So if you ask any government department, and we've, we've done a review of various existing government policies, all of them are trying to improve the quality of life for the public, for the individual, for communities, the sense of well-being, and surround having a better environment or having a better diet or having greater cohesion. There's obviously some government policy that accidentally have introduced toxic or harmful elements. 
sometimes what's euphemistically known as the nighttime economy can be unhelpful here. Yeah. Why does the state support gambling through, you know, grants for uh, various sports that are heavily associated with gambling? So we know some things are noxious that have got into the mix. But when you bring together all of the government strategies, you can see a huge confluence between things that we know in time or actually quite immediately can have a profound effect on people's experience of life, their mental health and quality of life. So it's really, it's a real helicopter view. It's the ultimate cross-government plan you're working on, really, isn't it? Yeah, I'm always a bit sceptical of helicopter views. One of the things we need to be careful of is that we get esoteric policy that is motherhood and apple pie and we'll all live happily ever after. And we know from being in any town or city or village in Ireland, we know lots of Irish people aren't enjoying good mental health. We can see people who are living on the margins. Yeah. We can see people who have adopted lifestyles or have, you know, whether it's a trauma, whether it's a life experience, whatever it might be, has left them in a, in a really vulnerable position. And sometimes health promotion and indeed mental health promotion can be considered to be a middle class sport. That, you know, when you've got your other basic needs met and you have a home and you have an income and you've got family and friends around you, well, then you can you know build on that and I'll, I'll now I'll go off and I'll do a bit of life stretching or yeah. improve my longevity. It needs to involve everybody. So it's as good as... And those other things are fundamental to it as well, obviously. You know, your your housing and your... Their core. Yeah, so it's very reciprocal, isn't it? And, you know, they they do speak to, again, Ottawa Charter priests around strengthening the community. You know, so if we have people who are trying to rear a family on minimum wage, and we know that minimum wage is about two euros shy of the living wage. So essentially that means that every hour you go to work, you pay your employer two euros to allow you to come to work. You know, it's simply not sustainable, it's not viable. And you can see government policy is moving towards that, but it's still very difficult to build dignity in the individual if they're actively being exploited in the workplace. Yeah. One of the other things, that, like going on, a continuation of the point about things that doesn't have a mental health name on it, but is promoting mental health. One of the programs that always jumped out to me, and I think it was Margaret Barry probably often made the point in Galway, was around parenting. And it's like a fundamental you know, for the parent who may be under pressure from time, but also for the child, like parenting is like the ultimate mental health promotion program in the best setting possible in this in a home. Well, I suppose one, one of the definitions of mental health, you know, sometimes people describe it as a one, two, three in terms of one is your relationship with yourself, two is relationship with others and three is your how you cope with the demands of life. And those first two are probably embedded in parenting that, that first thousand days. So your interaction with your parents is, you know, it's the prototype relationship. And if you often people, if they catch themselves on in terms of their internal dialogue and how they describe what they're doing and the running commentary they have for their own lives, they're often parental messages. You'll often hear your, your parents' voice. And even as you become a parent yourself and particularly with teenagers, you realize, gee, I'm turning into my dad here or this is something my mother used to say. So these are deeply encoded. There's no doubt about that. But we know that many people find themselves parents as a surprise, probably unsupported, probably doing this alone. They may not have intergenerational supports. Like a, an interesting thing in Ireland, I suppose, is that in for many families and many communities, we've actually removed elderly people from the, the conversation. And we know that our elders have enormous amounts of life experience. They modulate things. And if you take that expertise and you institutionalize it in a fair deal type model, that expertise has lost to the next generation. So older people will have seen many, many life experiences and be in a position to say, this is really difficult right now. It actually works out fine in the end. In fact, in two weeks time, you'll think this is hilarious. But right now, this is difficult and we all appreciate that. Yeah. 
we've taken that wisdom and expertise away from communities. And one of the outfalls of that is an increasing presentation of anxiety in young people who previously might have been able to turn to the grandparent who lived with them, who had time, who could invest and share their life, life wisdom and the skills. Yeah, that's interesting. So without those insights, there is a downside, you know, um, and, and that's it, it manifests itself oftentimes as anxiety. Yeah, it sounds to me like you're definitely trying to take the helicopter or the balloon approach. They're looking at some of these policy impacts that we may be kind of blindly accepting or working through. Yeah, and I think if, if you're working with policy, it's probably the distance, you know, if, if you're walking down the street, you're looking about five meters ahead. If you're driving down a road, you're, you need to look 30 to 50 meters ahead. If you're, if you're designing national policy, which will be written in stone for 10 years at a time, you need to know you're going to get it right. And you can't automatically lift something because it's worked really well in New Zealand or in Scotland or wherever uh, and just transpose it here. You know, because we've come a different route, we have a different history, we have a different background, we have different values, uh, and we cherish things differently. But there are many, many things through my contact with international leaders in mental health. There's things we're doing in Ireland that we just take for granted that are extraordinary and are unique to Ireland and other countries would look to replicate and simply haven't been able to do that. So we're probably inclined to beat ourselves up and that's probably where a lot of progress comes from. But I think we do need to take a moment saying we've come a hell of a distance. Look at the area of co-production and including people with lived experience. At a European level, Ireland are recognised as world leaders in this. Wow, that's great to and, hear. And people are coming to Ireland to adopt recovery college-like models uh, on the basis of what they've seen here. One of our recent podcasts was on the men's sheds, and I know Mental Health Ireland had played their part in the Sheds for Life programme, but like that phenomenon is is looked on, you know, by other countries as like, how, how are you doing that? But yeah. like there's something built in that we can create that social support system. You know, so I think that's another example of what you're talking about, yeah. is it? And if you look at, you know, volunteering, like yeah. the whole area of sports and GAA, for example, you know, people simply cannot believe that this is a voluntary organization run by, you know, people. This isn't their, their day job in some way. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to a group in, in Galway recently. We were talking about the distance between professionals. And sometimes people say, well, if you're not a professional, maybe you're an amateur. And amateur kind of sounds a bit, you know, inept or inexperienced. But the origin of the word amateur is from the French amour. And it's people who do things for the love of it, yeah, not yeah. because they're paid to do it. Uh, and I think that can be a really powerful difference um, for a person who is perhaps feeling very socially isolated. You know, someone isn't coming in because they're paid to do it. One service user described you know, a very diligent staff member who used to come in and used to refer to her as his paid pal. Oh, right. <laughs> Whereas if a neighbor dropped in or a cousin dropped in or whatever, that you know, had a different motivation and was coming from a different place. So sometimes when you pay for something, you can actually devalue it. And that's not to say, you know. So we have to value the things that we're, that we're not paying for. Just there's a, a great um, story. Apparently Mother Teresa had a, an American journalist traveling about with her and he was embedded and went into um, Calcutta into a little squash and it was a man who had a, a really unpleasant leg ulcer. Yeah. And she was unwrapping the bandages and the smell was getting stronger and stronger and she was picking off maggots off this and he just couldn't stand her anymore and he raced outside and threw up. And after about 20 minutes, Mother Teresa came out and he said, sister, I don't know how you could cope with that smell. So, oh, yeah, that's all part of it, you know. And she says, I could not do that for a million dollars. And she said, neither could I. So there are certain things, if you try and pay for it, you somehow cheapen it. Yeah. And volunteers and the spontaneity of community can be really, really powerful. And we have to be careful as health professionals not to displace that. It's one of the programs where... Um, began in Philadelphia, then it came to New York, then to London, and now to Balbriggan, 
It's a tribe model where you sit with community and say, what works really well here? And what are the things that are challenging that are within your gift? And there's been a really positive response to this in terms of promoting mental health that's contextual within the community. Yeah, I, I've heard about this, but I haven't seen it in action. So it's it's in Belbriggan in Ireland. We brought it to Belbriggan about two years ago as a concept and Fingal County Council have become involved and they said, listen, we'd like to be part of this. And they're actually uh, sponsoring a, a role in terms of the action research around this. But the model originally came from a guy called Arthur Evans, who was the commissioner of mental health in Philadelphia. And if you're in Philadelphia, the center of the city is a really nice place. But you go about a mile or two out of town and it's like a third world country yeah. with absolutely shocking infrastructure. And Arthur figured no matter how good a quality mental health service he could create, ultimately people had to go back and live in this community. So he said, there's obviously inherent skill sets in this community I need to understand. So he began to work with non-traditional actors like the police service, the local prison service, uh, ambulance men, educators, you name it, and began to understand what works in this community. And one of the things they, they, they used to engage with um, a wider cross-section of community, including musicians and art, etc., was to develop these enormous big public murals. So I think there's 1,300 of these murals across. And it's basically we're asking people, what excites you about this? What are you proud about in this area? Uh, and what's a challenge for you? So to have these really graphic yeah, they're beautiful. Like, I pieces. think I saw some of them. They really uh, hit the message home. And because they're designed with the community, it's, 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 it's it sends just, a really strong signal. Yeah, it's just at a different so level. This model then went to New York, where the, the mayor of New York has a mayor's fund. For every financial transaction in New York, there's a, what's called a Tobin tax. And it creates the mayor's fund, which is an $850 million fund. So the mayor gave 1% to Thrive New York. And they had 54 fully evaluated programs of projects, which included having mental health champions in schools, training people on mental health awareness, a whole range of different elements. This model has then come to London, where Sadiq Khan invested about 12 million. And they began by doing a big survey saying, are you OK, London, was the question. And people said, well, I'm not really feeling great. I'm feeling a bit isolated here. I'm a bit hurried and a bit rushed. How's this going? But then they actually tweaked it a bit and said, are you OK with losing 14 people from London to suicide every week? So it became wow. a much more challenging question then yeah. at that stage. But they have done some really simple and innovative ideas. One, the, the simplest one is an idea borrowed from Zimbabwe. They got two deck chairs. They got a pizza box. They tore the lid off the pizza box and they wrote helper on one piece and helped on the other and left it on the two deck chairs and then retreated back to see what would happen. And after about 20 minutes, two guys sat into the deck chairs. And as it turns out, one was a cop and the other was a homeless guy. So they let him chat for a few minutes and then went over and said, guys, we're doing an experiment. We're glad to see you using our lectures. Can you tell us what this is about? And discovered they were having a conversation. And one of them described how he'd had a bust up with his best friend and he felt a bit isolated and was a bit regretful about that. And the other was able to listen to this. As it turns out, the person who was helped was the cop and the person who was the helper was the homeless guy. Oh, flip it. Which flip wasn't it, the roles yeah. that yeah, they'd yeah, expected. Yeah. So just creating those little moments for human contact and interaction. And I think we all know London is probably, you know, the best example of a city in the world, but it can be an impersonal place and it can be a bit clinical and a bit removed, but they create a place where people can be seen as human beings. That has a really powerful correlation with good mental health. And I think as we design our cities and our urban space, we need to make sure that the places where people meet are genuinely in the public domain and are not commercial spaces that people happen to meet in. 
Yeah, we're not looking for foot traffic for the shop. If you, if you look over the last week and find out where did you bump into people, were you in a restaurant, were you in a pub, were you in a supermarket, were you in a shopping centre, or were you in a town square, which is you know freely available to all? Was it in nature? Was it at an arts event? And oftentimes we find, a bit like how we experience the world online, is you know your, your presence is actually there to advance a commercial ambition. Whereas just we are human beings as opposed to human buyers. So we should retreat back to that point if we can. Okay, that's great. There's so, so many uh, messages and all that, Martin, you're, you're a font of wisdom. One of the things I wanted to ask you before we finish up is about your work experience. Like you were in the HSE working in mental health services as an assistant national director for a good few years. And now you're working in recent years, you're CEO of Mental Health Ireland. What's your reflection on that? You know what I mean? You're kind of like you've been to the puppet show and seen the strings. I suppose in my own career, I suppose I began 40 years ago working as a mental health nurse then I did general nursing, then I worked in community mental health. And then I went on a secondment to Mental Health Ireland as a development officer. It was an arrangement between what was then the Eastern Health Board and a number of health boards across the country where a staff member could be lent for about a two year period on a secondment. And I just found that fascinating just as someone who largely work in hospital or community settings. But now you're working in a completely different sandbox entirely where you realize that you know, it's a, a contact sport. It's a trading relationship. There's lots of partners and expertises out there that you need to tap into. And you don't really have much control over this wave. So you've got to learn how to surf that somehow. And then I came back to, to work in the health service, worked as a nurse educator, as a nurse manager, and then into a management role as well. So ultimately as assistant national director for mental health. And that was fascinating. It was an opportunity to be involved in big, big canvas stuff like rolling out the Mental Health Act or working through Vision for Change which, you know, was a, a really key moment in Ireland's mental health services, unfortunately coincided with the economic recession. In fact, whenever you see a mental health policy being published, it's a good time to sell your house. It's a sign that the economy is about to tip over and crash. We had the same with planning for the future. Uh, and we've had similar challenges now since sharing the vision as well, you know, followed by a pandemic. But across that time, I suppose I've had an opportunity to work with some remarkable people, some of the most courageous, innovative, creative, brave people who use services. Yeah. And I think if I was to have some of their life experience and some of their symptomatology, I don't think I'd stray out of the house. And still they do. They get up yeah. and they dust themselves down and they come out again. And, you know, they just have an oblique view. And I suppose as a curious person, I always want to understand what's going on here and try and I don't think I've ever found a satisfactory explanation to all the things I've seen, but I've met some remarkable people. I met some extraordinary family members who family members are often cast in two types of roles. They're either considered to be angelic and, you know, so self-sacrificing or to be cold and demonic somehow that they're so rejecting. There has to be a middle ground. And that's where most people live their lives, somewhere in that middle ground. So I've had an opportunity to meet with people that, you know, who've done extraordinary things and continue to do that every single day. And then I suppose through my role with the International Initiative for Mental Health Leaders, I've got to meet people in different countries and to see how they view the world. So across those 40 years have been interesting. Um, on the 1st of March this year, I had a, a class reunion with my classmates and one who is a very, very fine and able nurse. He said, Martin, I'm not sure you've experienced it. But you've done two years of this and two years of that and three years of this, and whatever. And I said, yeah, but Johnny, I think I think you've done two years, the same two years, 20 times, as opposed to doing two years different. That can, be, that can be a danger for people that caught in the same job, all right? My classmate who stayed in nursing is a very, very skilled, able nurse, much more 
competent than I am because he's gone deep on that. Over 40 years, we've seen a lot of change in mental health. Most of it for the better. Not all of it for the better, but most of it for the better. But there are still some very significant challenges. When, when I began my career in Ireland, 12% of the health budget was spent on mental health. Today, it's not even six. Right. So in terms of our mental health in Ireland, if we're genuinely serious about this, and there's a lot of conversation and chatter, and discussion is good, but it needs to be followed through with resource and commitment uh, and actions accordingly, we need to get at least to 10%, but ideally to 12% of, of national health spending. Okay, well, that's a good Good ask. In terms of your next phase, you're, you're planning to retire. We have a new CEO of Mental Health Ireland coming in in 2024. Yep. So I'll be finishing up in my role in January 2024. Uh, our new CEO is joining us. Uh, Lisa Cuthbert is joining us from PACE. PACE is an organization that supports prisoners post-release um, in terms of accommodation. So not a million miles from the work we're doing in Mental Health Ireland. We know in Ireland, for example, 7% of the Irish prison population have psychosis. That's twice the international norm. For an individual, sometimes it's happenstance, the, the type of vehicle that's attached to the blue light that pulls up outside your house. If it's an ambulance, we understand this is a health phenomenon. We offer you mental health care. If it's a police car, you might be loaded into a different system and you're understood as a criminal justice phenomenon. So Lisa has a lot of experience in this area. For myself, I, I see that I'm retiring from Mental Health Ireland. I don't think I'll be retiring from mental health. I still have a number of interests I'm going to follow on and, and be curious about. And um, we have a project we've been working on for the last couple of years. We're, we're going to be building a little house down in County Carlow on the banks of the Barrow. So I'm looking forward to doing uh, some kayaking there in the, in the coming months as well. To sustain your own mental well-being. Absolutely. That, that's a big ask. Well, I'd like to wish you the best of luck with that. Thanks for sharing your views uh, on the podcast here with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. And I'd like to thank you, the listeners, for tuning in to another episode of HSC Talking Health and Wellbeing. Thank you.